You're listening to The Nosebag, a podcast about all things Northwestern past, present, and future. In each episode, we snack on some history tidbits, share laughs with a guest, and see what other food for thought the Packout Crate has for us. I'm Allie Burhow. And I'm Andy Burhow. Let's dig in. All right, lay it on me. What's in the bag? Oh, you're not going to believe this. Is it actually food this time? There's actual food in here. Oh, my God. Yes. We're going to be talking about the lodge and, and the dining experience and, and food and have, the role it plays at camp. I have lots of thoughts about dining and food. Well, that's that's what we're going to be discussing. Uh, I've been thinking about this topic and... You think about how important the role that food plays. I've I've heard many people say when they're at camp, they just their hunger goes way up. And I guess I get that. You know, we're hiking around, we're doing, but we're just programmed. Boy, man, you just know you can anticipate that jumper bell. Yeah, um... ringing. You get to a point where you're like, as soon as you start being hungry, and then you look at your watch and you're like, perfect, it's almost 1210. That means it's almost lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, I think we're, we get uh, kind of fixated on the food that we eat. But I think sometimes we don't really think about what goes in to doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. I've never really thought, well, how do you cook for 250 or 300 people. Well, let me tell you, I worked in the kitchen in the summer of 2015. Um, I was right out of high school. I hadn't really had a job before, but doing the dishes for literally everyone in camp or getting up at five and making your way to the lodge so that you and the cook can make French toast. It's, I think everyone should work in the kitchen because you really, there's a respect for the people that make your food and there's the, you definitely learn, it's humbling, I guess, to be the one that is, either cooking for or cleaning up after everyone at camp. And and I can safely say I've eaten a lot of camp meals, um, both working at other camps and then certainly many, many countless meals at Norwester. And the one thing about Norwester, I can't recall. I mean, there might be meals I like more than other meals. Mm-hmm. But I never felt like, oh, this food is terrible. But overall, you were always hungry in the sense that you were always ready to eat and, and eat a little bit more. But you certainly didn't go hungry there. There was, it was, um, I'd never had salmon cooked the way that, that I've had it at the camp meals. Um, so it really is a pretty cool thing that they do and, and how they manage to do that. So that's what we want to kind of delve into today. Mm-hmm. And just the role, I think, that the lodge itself plays. Yeah. If you think of one building. I think, I mean, the the iconography of the teepee is, is, has been pretty synonymous with camp, but in my mind, the kind of, beacon of community to me is the lodge and the the open-faced slanted roof building is so iconic and it it is the heart of camp and on John's especially if you ride by on the water that's what you see I mean you see the teepees and you see maybe some other buildings but you see that lodge almost as if it, it was sitting there with its arms open to you 
calling you in. You know what I mean? I do. And then, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's sort of this kind of, that's just what the image that's in my mind. And the interesting thing is, while we might sort of take for granted that look of, mm-hmm. of, of the lodge, um, certainly the original lodge at um, Westcott Bay, which I actually, we wandered around that property uh, years ago and having this debate about which building, because the, the lodge had to stay. Some of the buildings got moved over to Sperry, just like some of the buildings from Sperry got moved over to um, John's. But in both cases, the main lodge stayed on the original property, and mm-hmm. and that building was still there. It was a traditional kind of building. I think it sat, sat like 60 people or something like that, so it's fairly small. But when they moved to uh, Sperry Peninsula in the summer of 1946 was the year that they opened. So that winter, uh, fall, winter of 45, 46, they built this new lodge. They built this, which apparently was quite the thing. And rather than have me explain that to you, I want you to hear it from Lucille Henderson herself. They, the building, the lodge itself was reproduced in first in the National Journal here in this country. Then that article was reproduced in an Italian architectural journal and a British one. So the building itself, because of the time, was uh, avant-garde, the lodge was, the use of the poles and and the sloping roof. And, uh, and I remember one day when the lodge was under construction, well, pretty well constructed, and one of the, of course, the local people, we were the biggest, better than a World's Fair. They were down there all the time watching things going on and everything else. And then one man was, two men were leaving and one said to the other, I don't care what you said, you say, it ain't a roof unless it goes like that. <laughs> and our roof didn't go like that. And so <laughs> the whole camp was um, a, pretty much a shocker to Lopez Island but we behaved ourselves and our staff did and our kids did. So when she said go like that, they were making their hands like a pointed, you know, like a pitched roof, like you would think. As opposed like a house. To, yeah, as opposed to a, a shed roof that we think of. And I also think it's not just, it's not just a place that we eat. No. It, yeah. it can be anything that you need it to be. And has been. And it has been. I've I've been to chapels, campfires, musicals, staff trainings, sleepovers, both at the end of the summer as a staff and um, on work weekends or the beginning of the summer. Um, dance hall. Dance hall, dining room. It's been a... Reception hall. That's where... Your mom and I had our wedding reception in the uh, old lodge at on Sperry. Nice. So yeah, it's been. It's also been a, like a laundry facility when everybody comes back from an overnight where it's just torrential downpour. We hang the ropes and it becomes uh, like that scene in Mamma Mia where they have all the 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 laundry, the sheets, or in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, you know. The storage unit, and I remember the first time I came to uh, the camp and walking into the lodge, and it was just the whole back part was full of mattresses and bed frames. Oh, yeah. And canvases. Mm-hmm. That was where all that stuff was stored in the winter because, you know, yeah. camp's pretty minimalist. It doesn't have a lot of buildings. No. Um, and I think they uh, did the, the dances, the Native American dances. Um, were held originally in the lodge before the big house. Yeah, I think that's right. Was built. Yeah, and it's a cozy place to you know. It's got a fireplace. One of my favorite things to do in the morning is get up and get in there and and make the fire and just they're always good about having the coffee ready and just sitting and reading. It's and, so nice. Yeah, but kind of sometimes a, that fire goes all day depending on the weather, which like. I don't know. There's just something so cozy about it. 
Absolutely. So who would be better to talk to about food and nutrition and camp? Well, we're going to be talking to Krista Campbell. She was a dietitian um, in the 80s, and then um, she and Paul Henriksen took over as director. I don't know what year that was. Uh, summer of 1990 or the yeah, late fall of 1989, right in there. So they had some years on. Sperry, and then they transitioned the camp to John's yeah, in until, the summer of 2000. Yeah, until they retired in 2011. Yeah. And the whole time she was directing, I think she she was responsible for food. You know, the one thing I've heard from interviewing lots of directors is that, uh, and Lucille Henderson said herself, you, you – you go to each other's strengths, you know, what each of you are, you know, each director brings something um, that is kind of their, their area. Mm-hmm. So when I think of, of meals and things, I do think a part of that I attribute to some of those good experiences to Krista, at least in my experience. Yeah. All right. Well, let's give Krista a call. Hi, Krista. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allie. Nice to hear your voice. Glad to be here. We are so grateful that you are taking the time to chat with us. Um, We always start the show by asking our guest um, how you came to camp and just a brief history of your connection and and what brought you to camp and, and your first job, et cetera, and so on. Well, that was a while ago. So I came to camp in 1982. And what brought me there is I was actually just looking for a summer job. I was uh, attending the University of Washington in their dietetic program. I was back at school as a older student after getting a business degree. And um, so I had the summer off from that program, which dealt mainly with uh, nutrition and illnesses, and so I was looking for something a little broader, and I contacted the Dietetic Association of Washington, asking them if they had placements for summer work, and they did not. They didn't. They weren't in that business, but she, this woman had said, but we did hear from this summer camp last year up in the San Juans, I guess, and I don't know if they're still around or not, but you might give them a call, and so that's what I did. I called and talked to Susan Formo in the spring of 1982 and ended up being hired that summer to work in the kitchen and be their dietitian. So maybe can you describe what the job of the dietitian is? Yes, I can. It uh, it was everything I was inexperienced to do, basically. Um, the, the main part of the job is to make sure there are menus, plan the menus, um, so look at the variety and nutrition of, of what everyone is eating every day, and then uh, basically ordering the food and making sure that the ingredients are there for the cooks to prepare the meals. So um, back in '82, that was kind of a big job uh, because the you know the facilities back then we had a single a tiny walk-in and a couple of chest freezers and. We were trying to feed close to 300 people, and they, as I recall, I think we got, we had three different suppliers um, of food items, and they each came twice a week. So we were getting six deliveries a week because we just couldn't, didn't have the capacity to take more than that. Um, so that's, you know, basically getting the food there, um, making sure there's enough to make. I do remember I was working with um, copies of menus that were, excuse me, photocopied, and they were all in Jan uh, Jan Helsel's writing. So a lot of the initial menus that I saw were things that I think she created back when she and Jack were directing. So why was the job eliminated or absorbed into a different job? Well, uh, partially maybe because someone had more courage than I did. (laughs) (laughs) So I did that job for two years and then uh, it had existed for uh, kind of, well, actually when Jan Helsel, 
Jack and Jan ran the camp. I believe she did all the food ordering. That's what history I was given. And then I think when David and Susan took over, they worked hard. I know Susan was involved in some of that through the winter, but in the summer they hired someone to do that work, um, plus a kitchen manager. So, uh, and then I was gone for a few years. And then when uh, I came back, uh, or we came on as directors, I just didn't feel, I didn't have the courage to have someone else do it because it's such an important job. Um, so, but eventually they did. Sheila has now got someone, I think the kitchen manager is doing that and she's kind of working in collaboration with that position. So it's kind of just uh, been spread out, I think, more between two different positions. You you kind of alluded to um, when you first came into the job going, okay, this is not what I'm trained to do. What are the <laughs> challenges for planning meals and feeding you know, 250 to 300 people? Well, um, I would say my the first lesson I learned in 82 was people go through a lot of food. And I think if you don't have a concept of the volume, I remember walking into the back of the kitchen one day and, and thinking that someone had stolen the food, like it had just disappeared. The shelves were empty. And then, it, the, you know, the whole magnitude of the project sort of hit home <laughs> how much 200 people could actually eat. So um, back in the day, the challenge was actually having the space to get the food in and keep it um, through the week. The facilities are much different now in John's. It's easier to do that. Uh, I think now we get, since we were there, there's one basically one big delivery each week of everything, and we have the storage and uh, you know facilities to accommodate all that. I think the hardest thing, whether it's two people or 200 people, it's making people happy when it comes to food. Food's a very personal thing, and people like grilled cheese sandwiches done a certain way, and just they, we all have our preferences. So I think just the aspect of food service and getting that much quantity out on time is a big challenge. Um, and then having the broadest appeal, you know, to when you have 300 people, uh, there are three different, 300 different preferences probably for lunch and you have to make enough of something that most people will be very happy to have. And so I think that was kind of, uh, I would say the biggest challenge for me. And then I learned a lot when Tech Hillstrom came on as kitchen manager and chef. Uh, he brought a lot of changes just to the way things were cooked. Um, and that vastly improved the quality of the food. Instead of cooking in big, you know, 18-inch deep pans, we were in two-inch pans and just different things that he brought to the kitchen that made a huge difference in us being able to get all that food out and hot. So, If we just got to eat what we wanted, a lot of us would probably eat a lot of garbage. Oh, oh I see. <laughs> you know, what are sort of the fundamental, when you're planning a meal, it's like, okay, we have to have X, Y, Z. What are sort of the basic when you're looking at the meal and going, okay, mm-hmm. I need to make mm-hmm. sure from a from their health standpoint, I need to base, mm-hmm. cover these bases. Um, well, my basic nutrition counseling was, you know, you needed to have a protein, you needed to have a carbohydrate, you needed to have vegetables, you needed to have calcium, you needed to have vitamin A. There are a bunch of different things when you look at a plate uh, of food or a meal. And uh, I think what you're trying to do is to get enough variety that um, all those, you know, vitamins, minerals, different aspects of nutrition are being included when you take a whole day uh, as a total. And so it was kind of tricky. I know, um, I think Jan Helfel had sliced carrots on every meal, and I finally figured out that that was her guaranteed source of vitamin A that she was trying to get to people. Um, but I think it's kind of, again, looking at preferences and just trying to make sure that some people will eat what they want to eat, but if you provide them with a variety of things, I think we found at camp that some kids were trying things that they hadn't tried before, and the rule, you know, basically when it went around the table was at least one dollop or at least a bite or, you know, put color on your plate. And so it's, I think, uh, providing that variety of experience of different types of food and different textures and uh, that kind of all go into making the meal 
pleasant and uh, and nutritious. So, in your time as director, um, how has the dietary needs of um, campers and staff evolved over time? I mean, I know personally, I have developed some very challenging dietary needs in the last 10 years. So just, and I, and it, I've noticed that it's become more prevalent. Um, how, how challenging or how do you deal with some of those things as they come up? Well, to be honest, when I started in 82, we didn't have those types of challenges. I didn't see there were, um, occasional peanut allergies, peanut butter, but uh, even then not to the sensitivity, you know, the extent of the sensitivity that you find now sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, like back in 82, I couldn't buy enough milk to keep up with the demand of milk. In fact, we had to limit how much we put out at each meal. Everybody got eight ounces per meal, and that's all we could do because we couldn't store enough between deliveries to accommodate more than that. Um, and now, well, now, but when I left in 2011, we never consumed, I think the milk consumption had dropped by half, if not more. And I watched that happen over time. Uh, so milk consumption went way down, um, and food allergies and sensitivities started to climb. And, uh, you know, 82, there wasn't really even a a gluten-free option, I don't think, back then. Um, but as we progressed on Sperry till 96, and then going to John's, uh, gluten issues were coming up, um, milk issues were coming up, uh, just either sensitivities slash allergies, that they were just more, there was more of it by the time we got to John's. And but the good thing was there were also more specialty items available to accommodate some of that, which made it much easier. You know, if we had 2011 issues with 1982 product, it really would have been a challenge. But um, so, and, I, and then I think I, there's a lot, I have to say, I'll be honest, I think there's a lot more preferences that uh, people are, you know, uh, someone in food service like a summer camp is facing because the people have become more independent in their eating habits. And I think that's a really hard thing to give up when you come and live in community. So it's uh, differentiating between allergies and sensitivities and preferences. All of those kind of combine to make it pretty challenging nowadays to serve that many people. So like you, I, I my first summer was 1982. And uh, one of the things that I, I remember coming there as a counselor uh, were care packages. And kids would get these care packages in the mail, or sometimes parents would come and take their kids off property to, uh, you know, on a visitor's day, and they'd come back with grocery bags of usually high sugar foods. And I remember also on every table, at least at breakfast, there was a huge thing of sugar where kids would just pour. Do you remember this or, or that? Yeah, effect? And I then, do. Oh, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then somewhere along the line, it uh, that that started changing. I can't remember exactly when uh, we quit allowing care packages to contain food. Do you Do you remember when that change it happened? Ha- it happened before Paul and I became directors uh, in the fall of '89, but it wasn't in place in '82. So it sometime over that period. I think it came into being, and uh, and the sugar on the tables disappeared. <laughs> I remember Susan, poor Susan was just aghast. You know, some kids would take that sugar container and just up, turn it upside down and just pour it onto whatever. Um, so that quickly disappeared, as did most of the sugar. There wasn't a lot. I think we had Frosty Flakes or something. But um, some of those high sugar items gradually disappeared. Susan made choices on what they wanted and I think they were they were good choices and I don't know that the care package um, issue by the time we became directors food was uh, not supposed to be sent um, 
and I think it's kind of a combination of a variety of things. I think Jack and Jan Hill will probably try to control it a bit too, but um, I remember Jean Dowling, who was their assistant, was you know would remark about food care packages being used as barter and currency and getting kids to do things, other kids to do stuff in exchange for candy and whatnot. I don't I don't know if I saw much of that, but I think it was more. Uh, partially a nutritional thing that kids were filling up because parents, a lot of love is shown through food. And I think a lot of love was being portrayed, you know, kind of sent up in care packages. And uh, it does affect how kids are eating during the day and at mealtime. But I think more pragmatically for us is also the issue of pests and mice and raccoons and things like that, that um, having food in tents and teepees is kind of a setup for uh, having visitors. And it's, it's it's just not a great kind of community that you want to build. So um, yeah, care packages became uh, became very creative in a positive sense. That uh, we found that parents sent a lot of nice things that included the whole unit, uh, activities or books or games or whatnot. And uh, for the most part, kids were pretty resigned to know that they couldn't have food items and. Uh, I think it's I think it's a topic that different summer camps kind of deal with in general, and I would say the majority probably don't allow food items. Um, I guess that's all I can say about that. Yeah, well, I witnessed all of those things firsthand in my own unit. The kid who got the package would become king for a day for sure, um, yeah. and would trade and curry favor and things. So it was a it was a healthy and welcome change. Definitely right. sounds like it would shift the unit dynamic you work so hard to develop over the summer and then one kid gets a mountain of candy and then all of a sudden it's all shifted yeah it shifts that and then when the, the policy is to not send food you know there were there were occasions every summer through my whole directorship that you know food packages did arrive and we were pretty upfront with parents that we told them it was going to be uh, the food would not be delivered to the kids, and I think I might have even started just saying we're, we're going to share it with staff because I wanted them to know where it was going. And I think um, it was hard for some parents who were abiding by the rules, you know, that they were really they were having those discussions with their campers at home before they came to camp and and wanting to support us in our policies. And uh, and then you know if they were to hear about some child who somehow through creativity got food uh, past the front office um, you know it was kind of hurtful and disappointing to parents so we that was one of the issues we dealt with related to that. Moving forward um, what are some of the biggest challenges in moving to John's especially in the summer of 2000 and 2001 because um, the food delivery looks a lot different when you're on a non-ferry-served island that doesn't have any stores or anything like that. So what were some challenges? And, I mean, also you were in a, in a tent, I think. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> what are some right. challenges there? Uh, well, the big, I think the biggest challenge was that first year because we were – everything was in tents, uh, desert storm-type tents, and so the lodge was a tent and – the kitchen itself was a portable trailer. Uh, we called it the Snack Shack, and it was amazingly equipped to serve the number of people that we had. I don't honestly remember, Andy might recall, I think we had about less than 100 people total for that first. We were five weeks instead of 10, and I think we had, I'm going to guess, maybe it was 60 campers and 30 staff or something like that. But this little trailer was producing three meals a day, and it was amazing. What was incredible was that the dishwashers that were there that summer, um, they were working in really cramped and tiny conditions, and they got those dishes clean. And Oh, my gosh. So I think that was the biggest deal was just the accommodations uh, and or lack thereof of, of an act, you know, a real kitchen. Um, but after that... You know, we got it. We moved into the lodge the next year, and that was fabulous. Uh, much the same, almost identical to the old kitchen. Um, I think, in terms of just general 
whatever um, conditions, the food deliveries were easier because they were once a week, but they were they came when the tides allowed them to come. And so that we learned very quickly moving to John's that everything depended on the tides and we had to have enough water so the barge could come in and not get stuck on the beach for eight or 10 hours. So um, that was probably the biggest challenge because it was a moving target every week, different, um, different days, different times for that type of delivery. But um, yeah, I think once we got going, so much of it was the same, you know, that we got the tables, we got back in the lodge that, uh, was almost identical to the old one. So a lot of the things after that kind of fell into place. So is, is, as we've been preparing for this um, podcast and, and I started thinking about you know, dining as a, as a subject and it's like, huh, you know, I don't really think about it, but there's, you know, there's that saying an army runs on its stomach. And I think about how as a, camp you know it's like suddenly gosh i'm hungry it's oh it's 11 30 or you know gosh i'm you know you you really got programmed into that but also just the culture of the lodge maybe could you talk a little bit about just the role that that lodge plays in what it does for camp as a community yeah i think well i think um the hendersons were pretty clever like i've i've attended summer camps when i was younger nothing like uh norwester but um you know and they had very nice places to eat but what i found more often there were these long rectangular uh, rectangle shaped tables um cafeteria style tables and um where you're kind of limited on your contact with people you don't really think about it too much but those square tables that they set up you know, with eight people and you're facing across, you can see the other six people uh, very clearly. It just kind of sets up uh, a certain amount of intimacy in a crowd of 300 people. You know, you're you're there and you're focused. So I, 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 I have come to really appreciate that, that they did it that way. Um, it just makes it a little more intimate. And um, I think the whole concept of the family style service, you know, we didn't, don't have the kids walk through a line and get food. Um, everything is shared. It's just that whole concept of, well, it develops their self-control, their sharing, um, communication, just uh, self-control from the standpoint of either your portion size or for a nine-year-old just to keep their their bottom on that bench for the course of a meal, which, you know, when we're at home, we might be dining and dashing. I did see that change a lot. Kids, younger kids' ability to sit and stay focused at a meal uh, was it was more challenging moving to John's. I just find that attention span has shortened, and I think the lodge uh, meals and the way it's set up encourages the development of that skill. Um, I think the, having the responsibilities of being a jumper, just all of that stuff is kind of cumulative, especially if you come as a younger camper and you start to learn that stuff. Uh, and you have older campers who have done it, and they're there at the start of every session, and typically, often helping the younger campers figure out the system. You know, they're all, now they're about ten feet taller than the the little explorer that's trying to come through the kitchen to get plates and stuff. And there's a kind of an opportunity for kids to work cooperatively and help, and it, all those things kind of build on what the camp does. Uh, I think. Um, what I liked kind of was the game I played was looking at the tables over the years to see which was an old table that was now red, but probably was turquoise from the Hendersons. And you could differentiate them from the size, whether it was a three by three leg or a four by four leg and just kind of how those evolved and kind of decreased in numbers over the years. Um, but so I think that's all the things, all the aspects of eating in the lodge actually contribute to the, development of a, of a community in general. And I think, honestly, except for breakfast, you know, coming to eat, besides being hungry, sitting in there was just something we did in preparation for singing, because that's really was, is one of the most memorable things that came after the lunch and dinner meals was sitting around singing with everybody. So, Yeah, it was absolutely an exercise in patience. Um, I always have, the, when I think of the lodge, is the, that run walk when seconds <laughs> when, oh, when, and they're they're trying not to run but they have this sort of like 
speed walk. Yeah, this speed walk that's just yeah. fast like enough to maybe get them gait. in a position, but not yeah. so fast as to get them busted. And and their yeah. upper body is very still because they're like yeah. holding a plate, but their yeah. lower half is moving very fast. I know that's that's uh, that's the the separation that I would always see. You'd see these upper bodies going by just stiff, ramrod rod straight. But if you look down, all these legs are like in double time, but in tiny little steps, trying to make it look like they're not moving too fast. <laughs> um, we listened earlier to a, a clip from Lucille Henderson describing the lodge when they built it on Sperry. You know, the the one at Westcott was a rather traditional looking building, you know, pointed roof, but you know, that she was saying that this was written up in architectural journals, not only in the United States, but in Italy and in Great Britain, and that the locals would come. It was like, you know, kind of a spectator thing to watch this thing being built and they just hadn't seen anything like that. And then as I started thinking about it, you know, I don't know if I've seen many open face lodges like that. Um, When you rebuilt on John's, was there any question about what the lodge was going to look like? No, I, no, not in terms of basic design. I think the major thing that we ultimately decided to do was to remove the office that was attached to the lodge uh, over on Sperry and to make it its own separate facility just because it was kind of chaotic having that attached. But I think the general structure, I can't even remember that there was ever any discussion of not uh, – making it in the same, following the same fashion as, as the lodge on Sperry. I think um, I've, the story I have always heard is that uh, Ruth Brown from Four Winds would call over periodically to talk to Jack or Jan, and she, her one of her questions would be, so are you still operating out of that lean-to over there? <laughs> and uh, I, th- I think it was, it was pretty innovative, and I think um, it's kind of a badge of honor for anyone that's come through Norwester because it's as close to eating outside as you can probably get and still have some shelter. Um, and there's just something open. To, you're open to the elements. I just think it was just, again, one of those things that becomes, it's a challenge, you know, when you go to camp, moving away and doing something new. But that was just one of the aspects of uh, kind of surviving. You were out there and you weren't, you were giving up some of the creature comforts. And what I like about both the lodges, uh, but the one on John's in particular, the way it opens up and looks out across the water to the south, it's it's a stunning view, and it just brings everything in, you know, right into the lodge. And uh, in terms of giving kids and just people an opportunity to be out in nature, that that view is almost impossible to beat, I think, and it's not impeded by any structure whatsoever. So, yeah, I, I can't remember. I don't think we had any discussion about doing it any other way. Well, we were talking before we started you know, recording that um, you said, well, it'd be a lot louder. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't have Loud. that open. Oh, and I didn't really think about that, but yeah, it's. Yeah. Oh, yeah, if you'd put a fourth wall on there, holy moly, that would have been something. I mean, right now. We get busted a lot for, oh, we're being too loud because it also acts as a funnel outward. Right. Oh, yeah. It's like a big megaphone for sure. One of the things I like about the new lodge, we did make it a little bit bigger. Uh, So it's a memory from Sperry was when you were entering the lodge that you, at times, you were literally walking over benches to get to the back of the lodge because it was so full that the benches were back to back. You could... You were sitting at tables where you could lean against the person behind you at the other table and use each other as a backrest. So it was nice on John's to make it a bit bigger so that you could actually walk between the tables. <laughs> and Allie and I were talking about just terms like, you know, do you call it a cabin? Do you call it a house? This has always been the lodge, you know, not a dining hall, mm-hmm. which I think just fits the camp Hmm. I didn't exactly hear what you said, but um, 
it's been a lodge to me, and I think it's a lodge largely because it's more than a dining hall. Like, actually, it is kind of a lot of things throughout the day and uh, and throughout the summer. And so I don't know how they came up with the term lodge, but it really does kind of broaden uh, kind of its position in the camp community. And and so, you know, it's rainy days, it's uh, musicals, it's campfires, it's staff training, a sleepover with all the cat staff at the end of the summer. So, uh, yeah, dining hall would be kind of limiting in, in its contribution, I think, to the camp. So to wrap up, we're going to do just some rapid fire questions. First thing that comes to your mind, um, Andy's going to ask you some questions, and if you don't have an answer, that's okay. But, um, yeah, so he's going to ask, and then it's just the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. You ready? Okay. I am as ready as I'm ever going to be. What was your favorite spot on the Sperry property? I would say Cactus Rock, just being out there. You got married there, didn't you? We tried to get married there. It was just so windy. <laughs> we ended up getting married in our living room. Oh. Um, yeah, there was. That's right. We were there with my. We had our folks there and our witnesses and the and the justice of the peace. And we were supposed to be outside, out on the rock, and it was blowing a small gale. So we opted for the living room in the caretaker's house. Favorite spot on John's? I'd say. I don't know if they call it Reed's Point anymore, but. Uh, I would say Reed's Point, kind of over on the north side, northeast side. Favorite camp meal? Any meal that I didn't have to cook. And so that's why I always loved the food there. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that I could just come in, sit down and eat, and then I could leave was awesome. (laughs) So I don't know if I have a really, uh, I love sleeping breakfast, I have to say. Favorite activity to observe watching a unit do? I think. Uh, probably different things out on the challenge course. Uh, favorite unit location on on John's? Favorite unit location? I would say, well, my favorite location for a teepee was our final, uh, our transitional year was right behind the Vagabond. So I would say uh, that they're in kind of a funny position there, but their backyard is stunning. First camp song you can think of? Oh, Acres of Clams. Favorite time of day during camp? Well, on Sperry, it was when the sun was going down and the light was coming through um, all the trees, like from Cactus Rock across through the trees, that twilight uh, lighting was, I love that. So it would have been kind of a, like an, in the later summer, it would be a nose bag time. Go to, if you were going to visit Trader Horn, your go-to candy or food. Oh, I would get uh, licorice. Or what do they call them? Um, what do they call Red something? Red the vines. Licorice? Red vines. Yeah. Do you have a different word and for them you- in Canada? Yeah, I don't know what we call them. <laughs> but I liked, I loved red vines, and I loved them if they were just a little bit stale, you know. Got a little pushback. I love it. <laughs> okay, Krista, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us and... Um, giving us some insight. It was really, this time, good food for thought. Yeah, well, great. Well, thanks for asking me. It's been fun to kind of think about all this stuff and the changes that happened between Sperry and John's and the span of, I don't know how many, too many years. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. It was fun to chat with you guys. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Krista. (laughs) Thanks, Krista. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. You too. You too. Okay. That is always so fun to talk to Krista. Mm Mm-hmm. She had some really awesome insights into what it takes to feed so many people. And that job keeps 
going. Um, you know, Krista, as she said, retired in 2011. And uh, since then, Sheila Tallman really has taken that baton, I think you said earlier, yeah. uh, of carrying that forward. And I, I think about just how much has changed even in that time. Not so much that camp itself needed to change, but culture is changing. Things are changing, and camp really does have to evolve with those times, and, and even in this, in the last ten years, we just have seen a lot of uh, shifts. And I think Sheila and Jill have done a really nice job of steering that. Mm-hmm. So it would be, uh, I think, we'd like to hear. Uh, I know you reached out to Sheila to kind of get her perspective and, and kind of what's happened in the last nine years or so. Yeah. So we're going to listen to that and hear her thoughts on dining experience and um, keeping up with an ever-changing dietary need society. Hey there, Allie and Andy. This is Sheila. Uh, here's some thoughts on lodge culture at Camp Norwester. You know, I think it is so important and the reason why campers and staff like our dining experiences because of the culture around it, because there are no devices that are pulling people's attention, because there's a system for things. Um, Campers get to participate in a way where they have purpose. Maybe they're the jumper. Um, And also staff have a purpose too of just keeping peace and conversation at the table, uh, which I like a lot. I think there's also a culture that's been passed down for years and years and years of just good camaraderie and fun. I love that we sit at a square table where there's two per side um, because I think it really allows for a lot of uh, different types of connecting and talking across the table and both and next to you as opposed to a longer table. I also think that the music is a big part of um, just that anchor point at the end of meals, part of the lodge culture. Um, A little bit about eating in the lodge. Everyone loves to eat, so it's a very vibrant time, and there's lots of energy. The cooks are cooking, and the jumpers are jumping, and the kids are excited and ready and waiting, and so I think uh, that momentum builds and then everybody is just so excited to nourish their bodies. Um, I've never seen, you know, uh, hungry campers go through so much food, depending on the meal, of course. Uh, I think once um, camp shifted to really accommodating dietary restrictions, it took our experience to another level. We truly can be a place that is welcoming and affirming of every person who comes to Camp Norwester. Whether someone is gluten-free or vegan or vegetarian or can't have soy or nightshades, I mean, the list goes on and on, uh, or certain allergies, I think to know that our Um, food team has been able to accommodate feels really really good and I know from personal experience uh, having heard from these parents and campers who have these um, bigger needs some are 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 really you know intense kind of needs that they appreciate it so much and that their camper gets to have just a normal experience like everyone else I think it's really a testament to the nature of camps wanting to honor the whole person um, for, and it's not just Norwester, it's lots of camps, you know, knowing that this is the direction that we have headed. So, and this is where we're at. The last thing I'll say is that having some really stellar people in the kitchen has helped us, I think, go to new levels. Um, We can really get kids trying new foods and giving them those certain staples that they count on, whether it's taco night, killer mac, you know, um, 
baked potato bar, uh, lasagna night. There's so many great things about our food offerings, but to then also just encourage new things um, and I think raise the bar in terms of what are the healthy options we're giving. We have pulled away from uh, a lot of pre-cooked or frozen vegetables even and gone to fresh. We have eliminated high fructose corn syrup and, you know, gone from fake syrup to maple syrup, um, from all margarine to mostly butter and butter pads. Um, and then every once in a while some margarine for something else, but that is definitely, uh, the minority of use. So that feels good. And to continue to strive for more, you know, how can we have better bread? How can we make more creative salads that kids are going to like and try? So, uh, yeah, I feel really proud of, um, where we are and where we're heading, uh, in terms of food and fun in the lodge and creating a culture that really just honors everyone's body. It is always so great to hear just people's voices and, and Sheila especially love hearing your thoughts on all of, all of this that we're talking about. Um, we're, realizing that we haven't shared what our favorite meals are. That is true. I guess we don't have to play rapid fire, but um, I do love grilled cheese and tomato soup day. Mm. That is, you know, when I think about the consistent year in and year out, sometimes a certain cook will bring something that they do. Mm -hmm. Like when Nick was the cook, they had this curry dish that was really, really good. Um, but if a, a good grilled cheese and, and tomato, mm. how about you? Um, when I was a camper, before I developed all my dietary issues, um, Killer Mac was always my favorite. That was like the one meal that I would leave with maybe a, a hurt tummy, as in I ate too much. I was too excited about it. Um, but now I think I do like a, a good spaghetti situation, like a meat sauce pasta. Those are always good. I'm getting hungry just having all these conversations. <laughs> uh, so I think we have... Uh, finished up this nose bag. We sure have. We've consumed a lot of information about food without actually having eaten any of it. It was, you know, always fun to go back and listen to Lucille Henderson. Uh, I want to thank Krista for contributing her thoughts, Sheila for yeah. her, for what she contributed. And uh, until next time. This has been the nose bag. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.